Luke chapter 17, I want to begin reading in verse number 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here, or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto his disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here, or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For it is the lightning that lighteneth out of one part under heaven, shineth unto the other part under heaven. So shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat and drank, they bought and sold, they planted and builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is received. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife? Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there shall be two men in one bed, and the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken, the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Gospel Luke chapter 17. I have been enjoying studying and reading this portion of Luke and uh, thinking about the great theme of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I trust that uh, his word will be a blessing to us today as we continue to look at this great passage. The second coming of Jesus Christ is, uh, is the end of the story of God's uh, plan for mankind. It's the climax of God's creative and redemptive work. In humanity, it's the final exaltation of Jesus Christ. And God intends for us to understand it. Prophecy isn't mysterious. It's not hard to understand. Uh, as a matter of fact, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that opens with a statement of blessing to anyone who will read that book and who will keep what they read in that book. God intends for us to understand the book of Revelation. He intends for us to live in light of what he told us in the book of Revelation. And, of course, the book of Revelation is the great uh, full climax of what Jesus Christ is teaching here in Luke chapter number 17. And so this is uh, a precise, purposeful, and understanding doctrine in the Bible. It is a cardinal doctrine of Christianity, knowable and understandable. Jesus is coming again. And he told us what it was going to be like for him to come. He talked to us about what would precede his coming and what his coming would accomplish. And so we're studying from Jesus Christ's own lips, from his own words, what Jesus said about his second coming. Jesus is going to come. He's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to rule in this world and this is the greatest moment. It is Christ's high hour. And it's exciting to study the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, the Jewish people to whom Jesus came and ministered believed they would have a Messiah come and establish a kingdom. 
They believed that when their Messiah came to establish a kingdom, it would be a final earthly universal kingdom that would dominate the entire earth. What they got wrong is that they thought it was going to be that it was going to be their kingdom exclusively and they would be a part of that kingdom by right of their Jewishness and by right of their keeping the law of Moses. And so they thought they were a shoe in. They were the people who would make up the kingdom. They were just waiting for the king to arrive and deliver them from Roman bondage and establish that literal, visible kingdom on earth. Jesus Christ presented something that was different than that. Jesus Christ presented a kingdom that was based upon a conversion experience. And just because you were Jewish, that doesn't make you a member of the kingdom. They got angry with Jesus Christ because he would tell parables and then explain the parables and tell them that one day they were going to watch others enter into the kingdom and they would be cast out. They didn't like that. Jesus even had the audacity to tell them that there will be publicans, that is, thieves, and there would be harlots that will be in the kingdom before their rabbis would be in the kingdom. That was a shock. They didn't like what Jesus Christ had to say. And the closer Jesus Christ got to Jerusalem, where he would be crucified for the sins of the world, purchasing the the ability to grant forgiveness to guilty people. You know, that's a huge thing theologically. For God to maintain his justness while he declares just guilty people. A judge can't do that. If a judge declares guilty people just as if they never did it, that would be an unjust judge. God has to maintain justice and justify guilty people. The only way God can do that is to come to earth and to bear the penalty for man's sin. That God, having borne the penalty, paid to the uttermost the price of the sin of every person, He could then grant forgiveness to guilty people and still be a just God. And so Jesus presented a future kingdom for the Jewish people based on being converted, being born again. He told the great Pharisee Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the religious leader in Israel, he said, Nicodemus, if you don't get born again, you, not only will you not enter the kingdom of God, you're not even going to see it unless you are born again. And so there was a conflict of understanding of what the Jewish people expected and what Jesus Christ was teaching about. And so in our text in Luke 17, the Pharisees, angry with what Jesus Christ had been teaching, demanded of him, when will the kingdom be established? It was a demand. It was a challenge to Jesus Christ. And Jesus told them, don't even worry about when. You need to worry about if you're going to be in it. And so Jesus pointed out that the kingdom now is something internal. The kingdom of God is God ruling your converted heart, transforming you by the power of the word of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, making you like God, conforming you to the image of Jesus through the miraculous transition of salvation, transformation of salvation. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said to the unsaved people. Don't worry about when I'm coming back. Worry about whether you're going to be in the kingdom. And that will be determined by whether or not you've ever met God over your sin. And you've been converted by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been born again. Now, having said that, Jesus then turned to his disciples in verse number 22. And he said unto his disciples, the day will come. And he began to talk about his kingdom then. That's why the title of the message is, started out as the kingdom now. That's the message to unsaved people, the kingdom now. 
is the transformation of your heart by the blood of Christ so that Jesus rules in you so that you can be a part of the kingdom then, which will come someday. And so Jesus began to talk to his disciples about the kingdom then. We've been working our way through uh, what Jesus taught to the disciples because he laid out seven characteristics of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Seven characteristics of his kingdom that he will establish when he comes. Two Sundays ago, we looked at the first two, and we learned the importance of staying focused while dreaming because we found that Jesus said that his second coming is something desired but delayed. Last Sunday, we learned not to be caught off guard because Jesus said his coming will be unexpected. The ones alive on earth won't be looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ. It'll catch them totally off guard. And we also learned that it would be universally visible, just like lightning that flashes in one sky and you're looking the other direction. You see the light reverberate across the heavens and you are aware something happened behind you. And Jesus said, that's the way it'll be when I come back. Universally around the globe, there won't be a person living in any part of the globe that is unaware that something cataclysmic just happened somewhere in the world. Jesus said, that's one of the characteristics of my second coming. Now this morning, we're going to look at characteristic number five and number six. And then we're going to save the vultures for next Sunday. I was going to preach on the vultures today, too, but uh, it's just too long. And I know that, that once I go over an hour and a half preaching, no, no, for you that are guests, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. Let's look at two characteristics. You see them as five and six on your little worksheet this morning. And we're going to learn today that you can't escape his piercing look. That's our bluff, our bottom line up front. You can't escape his piercing look, as we consider two more characteristics of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at verse number 31. Verse 31, the Bible says, In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away, and he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. What is he talking about? Well, the housetop for those, the architecture of the homes that people lived in when the Bible was written, they, they had flat roofs, but it wasn't just a roof. It was kind of like their patio. They would often have an exterior staircase that would lead from the outside up the side of the house to access the flat roof. And it would have a little bit of a wall around it. And they would have some chairs or some seating of some kind, maybe some potted plants. Think of your patio. The housetop was the patio of the people where they would go up and sit and enjoy a beautiful day up on the roof of their house. And so Jesus Christ is talking about when he comes back, it'll be kind of like this. There'll be some people that are up on the housetop. And they're up on the patio, they're kind of just enjoying the beautiful day, maybe sipping some sweet iced tea and, and uh, thinking about uh, whatever they thought about back then. And all of a sudden, something cataclysmic occurred. And Jesus Christ had come back. Jesus said in that day, if you're up on the housetop on the patio and, you, and your stuff is in the house, don't go back in the house and get your stuff. He said, if you're out in the field... When I come back, don't, don't come back home to get your stuff. Run! Run! What is Jesus talking about when he talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ and stuff in the house? Jesus points out that at his second coming, he will reveal what is important to every person? What is important to every person? The characteristic in verses 31 to 33 is that the second coming of Jesus Christ will be revelatory. Or in other words, it will be revealing. It will reveal the heart of an individual. You see, the tug of this world and its stuff pulls at people's hearts. Does it not? The stuff of this world pulls at people's hearts. 
Even in the day of Jesus' second coming and all the cataclysmic events surrounding it, some people will still be fixated on their stuff. And so Jesus even used the word stuff. He said, if you're on the patio, when I come back, don't go get your stuff. Now that's, to go get your stuff is a reasonable thing to do. If, if all of a sudden you got word that there was a tragedy, you may run in and, and, and grab your wallet or, or your purse. Uh, if, if, if all of a sudden you're in a place where a fire is burning through a neighborhood, you may go in and get your family picture album. You may go in and get some papers that are very important to you. I mean, it's reasonable that when something catastrophic occurs, it's reasonable to run in and get your stuff that is very important to you. But Jesus said, don't go get your stuff. That's interesting that Jesus Christ would say that. You know, throughout the Bible, loving stuff during life on earth is a subject that God addresses. We go back to the Ten Commandments. You know, God's top ten. And the tenth commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's stuff. We go back to the, the, uh, one of the, the primary passages in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. The Bible talks about, about the, the, uh, the contrast of covetousness and contentment. Of, of wanting more stuff versus being content with what I've got. And it's in that passage that the Bible even talks about how that we, we didn't bring any stuff into this world. How many knows that every baby born doesn't bring anything with it? I mean, it's just there. And that verse says, and not only do we not bring anything into this world, we will take nothing out of this world. And Jesus Christ is talking about a moment in history when everything is going to so drastically change. That those that are unsaved, they're going to be cast into hell. They won't take any of their stuff there. Those that are saved are going to go into the kingdom of God and everything's going to be so drastically changed you don't need any of your stuff. And so Jesus Christ said, my coming is going to reveal what's important to every individual. Because some people won't want to leave their stuff. Some people won't want to come to the end of life on earth as we know it. And they want their stuff. That's still in the house. Jesus in Luke 12, just a few chapters earlier, told the story about two brothers that were fighting over an inheritance. And they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, would you settle this dispute? We want our dad's stuff that died and we can't agree how to divide it up. And Jesus Christ kind of told them off. And then he told a story. Remember the story about the rich fool? Who worked all of his life and saved all of his money. And he did really, he made wise decisions. He worked hard. He didn't spend everything he got. He saved. In fact, he saved so much he didn't have anywhere to store it. So he had to tear down his barn, build a bigger barn. Because he didn't have sufficient space to be able to store all his stuff. And Jesus then called him a fool. He said, you've got a lot of stuff. But you're not rich toward God. And tonight you're going to die. And whose shall all your stuff be? Because you're not rich toward God and you're leaving out of here with nothing. And all your stuff's going to be given to somebody else. And you're a fool. So all through the Bible we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in, in uh, uh, stories told and doctrinal sections explained, we have a continuum of information where God talks to us about stuff because we live as materialistic and covetous and we want stuff and Jesus said when I come back 
I'm going to reveal which of you are so fixated on your stuff that you'll be tempted to go back in the house and get your, your, your oh, I left my smartphone on the table. I can't go anywhere without my smartphone. I've got to go back and get my stuff. And Jesus Christ said the second coming of Christ will reveal what's important to you in life. Whether you're ready to meet God or whether you are still fixated on your stuff that's in the house. Interesting. I'm forced to ask myself the question, what stuff do I have that I would not gladly walk away from in a minute to go be with Jesus? What do I have that I would have second thoughts? Oh, if I could just get my laptop. If I could just get my picture. If I could just get my smartphone. If I could just get my... What stuff do I have that I would think about for a second if given the opportunity to walk away from everything and go be with Jesus? You see, Jesus' coming will reveal the heart of every person, whether they love God or whether they love stuff, and which is more important. You see, Jesus Christ is going to come, and, and that revelation will be crystal clear. I put down your little worksheet there. Uh, at Jesus' second coming, the heart of people will be revealed. Nothing escapes his piercing gaze. Why do I say that? Because if you go back to the book of Revelation, where the coming of Jesus Christ is told in such great detail, you start in, Genesis, in, in Revelation 1, and then you go to Revelation 19, and in both places you're met with Jesus Christ with eyes piercing as eyes of fire. In Revelation 1, Jesus Christ is visualized at the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, as being one whose eyes are piercing, they pierce to the heart of an individual. They reveal what's in the heart of every individual. When you jump ahead to the end of the book of Revelation, to Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back to earth, the Bible describes him coming back. And one of the descriptions is he has eyes as flames of fire piercing to the very soul of every individual. I want you to understand that the second coming of Jesus Christ will be revelatory. No one will hide. No one can put on a face and pretend they're someone that they're not. No one will have the capability of hiding who they really are. Because who you really are in the very depths of your being, who you really are, will be revealed by the piercing gaze of Jesus Christ. And by way of illustration that would make sense to the people, he said, do you love stuff or do you love me? If you love stuff, you'll go back in the house and get some stuff. But if you love me, you could care less about your stuff. You just want to come and see me. When I come back, revelatory in nature. But you know, it's not only the eyes of Jesus Christ that are revelatory. The Word of God reveals. In Hebrews 4.12, the Bible talks about the Bible as being like a, a sharp, two-edged sword that pierces to the very core of a, of a body. The Word of God pierces. Have you ever noticed the Word of God pierces to the core of your being? When the Spirit of God takes a truth or a parable or a principle or a statement from the Word of God and God pierces to your heart and says, you're guilty of that. And you feel convicted in your heart. That's the piercing work of the Word of God. Piercing to the heart of man. One of the characteristics of the second coming of Jesus Christ is that his coming will reveal the heart of every individual. Nobody can play charades. Nobody can hide their reality. Nobody can put on a face and pretend there's somebody else. No hypocrites. No masks. Everything's off. 
Jesus Christ will reveal the heart of every individual at his second coming. Wow. The psalmist talked about this often. Psalm 139, 23, the psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Have you ever prayed, God? I don't know that I, I don't even know if I know me. God, I, I'm not sure if I understand what you see in me. God, would you pierce to my heart? Would you examine me? Would you try me? Would you see if you find anything wicked in me? Would you pierce to the core of my being? The psalmist desired that. In Psalm 26, verse 2, the Bible says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Yes, this, one of the characteristics of the second coming of Jesus Christ is that it will reveal the truth of every individual They will stand before God as an open book, their hearts split wide open by the piercing gaze of Jesus Christ, and exactly who they are will be revealed. Did you notice the next verse? Remember Lot's wife. That's interesting. Remember Lot's wife. Verse number 32. He's talking about loving your stuff so much. That you would, you would, you would turn around and, and, and go back to the house to get your stuff. You'd, you'd, you'd leave the field and instead of just running, you'd go back to the house to get your stuff. And God said, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't love stuff. Don't love stuff more than you love me. Remember Lot's wife? You see, he had already talked about the world of Lot's day just a few verses earlier. He said in Lot's day, no one was looking for the judgment of God. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were living in such perversion and uh, immorality and wickedness. No one was expecting judgment. Everyone thought that life was going to go on and and they were going to enjoy their sin and there's no God to give an account to and everything's fine and, and, and they weren't looking for judgment. And then God came. Jesus Christ came to earth. One of the pre-incarnate visits to earth. Jesus Christ and two angels came to earth. They went to see Abraham. They, they said, God said, shall I, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm getting ready to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? And, and Jesus said, I know Abraham. I, I know what kind of man he is. I know the character of his life. I know Abraham. I can trust him with this information. He sent the two angels ahead and he stayed with Abraham. He told Abraham what he was fixing to do. The angels got to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had been talking to Jesus. Oh, if, they could, if you could just fight. Lot's there and Lot's wife's there and, and four children. That's, that's, uh, there's six People that I'm related to that are there. You certainly won't destroy them with the wicked, will you? And you remember, Abraham whittled it down to ten people. Man, if there's six people there, and two of them are married, and so that makes eight. If, they, if, if the ones that got married, if they reached their husbands with the truth of God's love and mercy, and, and, and there's, if they just reached two people, maybe two grandkids, or maybe two neighbors, certainly there's at least ten The angels got there and they didn't find ten. As a matter of fact, not even Lot's whole family paid any serious attention to God and God's judgment. And so, two angels appearing as men, which means each one had two hands. One angel grabbed a hold of Lot's hand, grabbed a hold of Lot's wife's hand. The other angel grabbed a hold of one of the unmarried daughters, and with the other hand grabbed a hold of the hand of the other Unmarried daughter and two angels with every hand held on to somebody, pulled them out of the city. You remember the story about how they got out of the city and the fire and the brimstone began to to fall down on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. and, and, And four people were pulled out of sudden destruction. No one was looking for it. No one was expecting it. That's the way it's going to be when Jesus comes back. No one's going to be looking for it. Totally unexpected. But you remember Lot's wife. The angels told her, told all four of them, said, don't look back at your stuff. 
Don't look back at your stuff. Flee the judgment of God. Don't look back at your stuff. They drug them out. They got out to Zoar. Fire and brimstone engulfing the cities of the plain. The Bible said that Lot's wife was standing behind him. He probably didn't even realize it happened. And from behind Lot, she couldn't stand it. She couldn't bear it. What, what was there in Sodom that Lot's wife couldn't bear leaving? How had Sodom got a hold on Lot's wife's heart? Was it her house? Was it her furniture? Was it her wardrobe? Was it her technological devices? Was it her grandkids? Was it her daughters? Was it her son-in-laws? What about Sodom was more important to Lot's wife than fleeing judgment and obeying what she was told to do? The Bible says she looked back. My house. My furniture. My stuff. My family. And immediately she was turned into a pillar of salt. Under the judgment of God. Meaning only three of Lot's family made it out of the horrible judgment of God. Jesus said, don't go back for your stuff. Remember Lot's wife? Stuff had captivated her heart. And she loved stuff more than God. And Lot's wife has been, for all these thousands of years, the primary example of someone so close to escaping judgment, so close to avoiding the catastrophe of hell, so close to being delivered from the immediate judgment of God, And yet her love for stuff pulled her away. J.C. Ryle, an old preacher of a bygone generation, wrote this. There are many in the present day who go a certain length in religion. They conform to the outward ways of Christian relatives and friends and they speak the language. They use all the outward ordinances of religion, but all this time their souls are not right in the sight of God. The world is in their hearts, and their hearts are in the world. And so Jesus gave an oft-repeated principle that he spoke of often in verse 33. Do you see it? Verse 33, Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Oh, Jesus said that over and over again through his ministry. An oft-repeated principle. Jesus said, you want your life? You want your life? All your stuff? Is that the most important thing to you? You want your life? A hundred years from now, you'll wish you hadn't loved your stuff so much. You willing to lose your stuff? You willing to lose your life for his sake? A hundred years from now, you'll realize what a blessed decision it was to lose your life for the sake of Jesus Christ and find that for all eternity you have vastly more than you ever gave up. You see, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus will reveal the truth about the heart of every person on earth, those who love God. Versus those who love stuff. Listen carefully to these words from 1 John. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world passeth away. Jesus is talking in Luke 17 about his second coming. When he will come and the world as we know it will pass away. 
In 1 John 2, he said, The world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You lose your life for Jesus, you'll have it forever. You try to save your life and get everything you can get out of it, you'll lose it all forever. Oft-repeated principle that Jesus spoke of. So, What's the second coming of Jesus Christ going to be like? It's going to be revelatory. It's going to reveal the truth about every human being on earth. Their heart. Their love for God or lack thereof. Their love for stuff or lack thereof. Remember Lot's wife. Remember the tragic cost of loving stuff more than loving God. Well, let me give you the last, the the sixth, last one for today. Sixth characteristic. It is that the coming of Jesus Christ will be divisive. This is a difficult, difficult characteristic. A difficult characteristic. You see, so many of these characteristics are are difficult to deal with, to meditate on, to think through. Jesus is correcting false assumptions, both in the Pharisees and in his own disciples. He's correcting false. False assumptions about his second coming. And here we come to this next to the last one. It is divisive. You see, back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus Christ had talked about how divisive it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He said, think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Luke chapter 12. Think I've come to bring peace on the earth. Nay, I say, but division. And then he began to list family members divided from family members. How many families have been divided over Jesus Christ? A husband saved and a wife's not. A wife saved and a husband's not. Parents saved, but the kids are not. Kids got saved, but the parents won't have anything to do with it. And the person of Jesus Christ divides. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring everyone together in peace. My message and my reality will bring division in the lives of people. As a matter of fact, in the in First Peter chapter three, God even gave us specific teaching on how a saved wife married to an unsaved husband is to conduct her life because of the division in her household. One spouse married, uh, one spouse saved, and one spouse not. Division's a reality of being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's tragic. But it's real in so many cases. And so Jesus Christ said in verse number 34, I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed, the one taken, the other left. Two women grinding, one taken, the other left. Two men in the field, one taken and the other left. Jesus Christ said, when I come, there's going to be division in families as some Go to be with Christ, and others are not. I want you to notice something just by way of Bible study. If you look carefully at verse number 34, you see the word men is in italics. Verse 35, the word women is in italics. Verse number 36, the word men is in italics. Now, you know... As a student of the Word of God, that when a word is in italics in your English Bible, that that was the way the translators indicated to you that there was no corresponding word in the original language that God gave the Bible in, which was Greek in the New Testament. That word was added by the translators. They thought it would help the reading of the phrase. So whenever there's an italicized word, it may help you, or it may be better just to read it without the italicized words in there and read just the words that God breathed. Now, read it without the italicized words to get what God actually said. I tell you, in that night there shall be two in one bed, one taken the other left. Two shall be grinding, one taken the other left. Two shall be in the field, one taken in the other left. There's nothing gender-related In any of those verses, the verses are genderless. It's not talking about male versus female. It's just talking about people in families. Two people will be in a bed. 
one taken, the other left. Two will be in the kitchen preparing a meal, one taken, and the other left. Two will be out in the field working in the family garden, one taken, and the other left. Now, what is Jesus saying specifically? Who's taken and who's left? So many times people have read these verses casually, not in their context, and have imagined that this is talking about the rapture when Jesus will catch up off the earth those who are saved to meet him in the clouds. Of course, if you've been with us these few weeks that we've been studying this passage, the rapture is nowhere in this passage not talking about the rapture at all. It's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth at the end of the tribulation period. Who's taken and who's left? Well, he used two illustrations, Noah and Lot, both illustrations of catastrophic events where the judgment of God came unexpectedly. In Noah's case, Noah and his family were left on earth. And everyone else was taken away in judgment. In Lot's case, Lot and his two daughters remained on earth. And everybody else was taken away in the judgment. The Gospel of Matthew's account makes it even more specific. Speaking of Noah, the Bible in Matthew 24 says, The flood came and took them all away. Two shall be in the field, the one shall be taken. The ones who are taken are not taken up in the rapture. That is total confusion and misreading, taken out of context, everything that this passage says. This is not talking about a rapture. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus to this earth. And when Jesus Christ comes to this earth, there will be some who will be left on earth to enter into the kingdom of God. And everyone else will be taken away to hell. When judgment comes, a few are left and everyone else is taken away. And Jesus Christ said, when I come, there's going to be division in families. It's tragic, but it's true. There'll be families where there'll be two people in a bed in the home. All of a sudden, one is taken away in judgment. And one is left on the earth to enter into the kingdom. There'll be two in the kitchen preparing the evening meal. All of a sudden, one is going to be left in the kitchen to enter into the kingdom. The other is going to be taken away in the judgment that accompanies the second coming of Jesus Christ. Two are going to be out in the field. All of a sudden, one's going to be left on earth to go into the kingdom. And one's going to be taken away in judgment. Taken out of this world. What Jesus Christ is saying to us, as horrible as it is, is that the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to bring division to its finality. It's tragic, but it's true. Families will be divided. Deeply divided. And some go to hell. And some enter into the kingdom. This is going to be universal. For some families, it's nighttime and they're in bed. For other families, they're in the field working. This is global. This is around the world. Daytime in one part of the world. Nighttime in another part of the world. Globally, when Jesus Christ appears at his second coming, there will be a finality of division of families. As some are taken into the kingdom and some are left to be eternally separated from God and from their family. Let me, let me just read a statement from Matthew 25 where Jesus Christ gives more detail about this same thing. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, He shall sit upon the throne of His glory. Before Him will be gathered the nations, all the people of the nations of the world. He'll separate them one from the other as a shepherd divideth his sheep from his goats. When Jesus comes back, He'll take everyone alive on planet earth and He'll divide them into two categories. He said like a shepherd would divide the sheep from the goats. He'll say to one group of people that are divided from the other group, 
Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He'll say to those at the end of the tribulation period, when he comes back in his glory, those who have gotten saved during the tribulation period, he'll say to them, You stay on earth. Come into the kingdom that I've been planning from the before I created Adam and Eve. And then... In the same passage, he'll say, depart from me. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And the great divide as those that are left on earth to go into the kingdom are divided from those that are cast into hell at the end of the tribulation period. What's the second coming of Jesus Christ going to be like? It's going to be a difficult day. It's going to be the most cataclysmic event in the history of all of humanity. The flood of Noah's day pales in comparison. The, the cities of the plain with Sodom and Gomorrah pales in comparison. When Jesus Christ plants his feet back on earth and he divides the peoples of the world into those who got saved during the tribulation, separated from those who never believed it. And he'll say to the saved, stay on earth and enter the kingdom. And he'll say to the ones who were lost, depart the everlasting fire. I never prepared it for you. I never wanted you to go there. I prepared it for the devil and his angels. I never prepared earth for a human being. I never prepared hell for a human being. I never prepared the judgment of hell for a human being. I prepared it for Satan and his rebellion against me and the angels that followed him. And I have reached out to you in grace and mercy. I've given you preachers and Bibles. I've called out to you generation after generation. Come, all ye that labor and heavy laden, come to me. I said to you, come, reason with me. Though your sins be as scarlet, they could be made as white as snow. Generation after generation, preacher after preacher, Bible after Bible, I've reached out to you. I've invited you. I've pleaded with you. I have no joy in the judgment of the wicked. And yet you've refused. And yet you've rejected. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Enter into everlasting fire, everlasting fire, fire that will never end, that I prepared for Satan, that you'll be cast into. Horror of horrors. The second coming of Jesus Christ will be the awful division of the lost from the saved for eternity. Oh, the disciples were shocked. The disciples who heard these words from Jesus were shocked. They were, they were speechless nearly. All they could get out of their mouth in verse number 37 was, where is this going to happen, Lord? Is this going to be in Babylon? Is this going to be in Egypt? Our two prime uh, opponents, our two prime uh, uh, enemies, where is this going to happen? Jesus said, you see vultures? You see vultures, you know there's something dead on the ground. Next week, we'll see the vultures and the dead on the ground. And we'll see the last characteristic of the second coming that Jesus explained in this passage. Oh, Jesus is describing a very real yet future event. It's real. It's going to happen. It's certain. Some of you may be alive when it happens. It's going to be preceded by seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. It'll be preceded by seven years. If that seven years was to happen today, start today, if that seven last seven-year time clock, if it began today, there'd be about seven years of amazing things happening on earth between Israel and the nations of the world. It'll culminate in the nations of the world trying to annihilate Israel once and for all. It'll be the final of the final solutions. And it'll be worse than Hitler's Holocaust. 
And at the end of that seventh year, Jesus Christ will appear. And when he appears, I can tell you some things that are characteristic of that day. It will be desired by people who've longed for him to come back and establish his kingdom. But it has been delayed by the prophetic schedule and plan and love of God. It will be unexpected to everyone on earth at that time. It will be visible globally. Nobody anywhere on the globe will miss it. It will be revelatory. It will reveal the reality of every person's heart. And it will be divisive as families are split down the middle between family members that were saved during the tribulation and family members that rejected Christ during the tribulation. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. How does it impact you? What if that seven-year window was to start today? What if in seven years from now, you began to see things happening around the world that was eerily reminiscent of some, some preacher years ago that preached some sermons in South Riding about what it would be like when Jesus Christ came back. You begin to search the internet, see if you can pull up those sermons. Maybe you dug through some old drawers to find if you could find that sermon worksheet that you jotted some notes on. You realize that the second coming of Jesus Christ could happen at any moment in your lifetime during the tribulation period. And you face the reality of where you stand with Jesus Christ. Oh, but you don't have to wait for seven years. (laughs) Because Jesus Christ wants to save sinners today. So they can escape that seven years of tribulation. And not have to endure that awful time of human history when Jesus comes back to this earth. 